This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. James Blake has solidified his status as a singer, songwriter, producer, and instrumentalist with a boundless palette. He was an early guest on this podcast, discussing his 2021 album, Friends That Break Your Heart, with The Fader's David Renshaw. Just since then, Blake has composed an AI ambient album with the generative music app Endel, helped produce records by Rosalia, Travis Scott, and Don Tolliver, collaborated with Metro Boomin on Hummingbird, which was featured in the official Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse soundtrack, and contributed a track to comedian Neil Brennan's Netflix special, Blocks. His versatility has kept devout fans on their toes, ever since he pivoted from his zany post-dubstep productions of the late 2000s to more pop-oriented songwriting with the release of his self-titled album in 2011. When longtime listeners heard Blake's bass-heavy Big Hammer, the lead single off his forthcoming record, they wondered if it meant the old James Blake was back. In fact, he's only moving forward. Playing Robots Into Heaven, Blake's sixth studio LP, is set to arrive on September 8th. Packed with tracks fit for a grimy nightclub, introspective examinations, and tender ballads, the album hits every touchpoint Blake's fans are familiar with and breaks new ground. Ahead of playing Robots' release, Blake joined the Fader interview for a second time, our first return visit, sitting down with Ariel Lana Lajard for a conversation about the recipe for a good dance party, the problem with parasocial relationships, and the differences between DJs and comedians. Where are you right now? I'm in my home studio in LA, yeah. How is it over there? How's the dance music scene over there compared to the UK? Dance music in the UK, I feel like the best of it is pretty easy to find. Whereas the dance music in LA, like the best of it, you've, you've kind of got to look for it a little bit more. The more commercially kind of advertised nights are not maybe the best ones, but you just got to look for it a little bit more, that's all. But it's there. Tell me about the last good dance party you went to. Well, that was my own. That was CMYK. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was in LA recently. The last time I went to see that show was for Portola, the after party. Very crazy in there. Mm, that was a good one. But it was also, I feel like the venue, if I remember correctly, there was something about the way the staff were at that particular venue that didn't quite it's like we needed, you know, we do it with, we do our, like, our nights with Rhonda, who are amazing, and they always, they, they usually bring their own people, you know, so Rhonda's, like, staff, like, the people who work on the door and, like, you know, people who are kind of, like, welcoming you into the club are, like, much friendlier than somewhere, like, where we were. You know how sometimes bouncers and, and like, the people who work in a building, they can, depending on kind of what kind of club it is, they can be a bit rough or they can be a bit not very friendly or they can kind of make the experience feel quite different. It's supposed to feel like a free-spirited atmosphere, right? And so if the people who work there feel free-spirited and everything's within reason, it's just like a free 
atmosphere, then the the place feels like that. And that's kind of what I want at our nights. I want it to feel like somewhere you go as an escape, uh, not somewhere where you feel like you're constantly being, you know, like told what to do. That was my only qualm with that. Because I heard, you know, like even people from Ronda were not being let backstage. I was like, this is insane. Like I've told them, anyway, that's a big part of club culture. A big part of club culture is hospitality and like making people feel welcome and loved. And like, it's a really, it's got to be like an inclusive space. That's what CMYK is about. Going back to your album, it's been billed as like your return to club music, but you've mentioned that it doesn't mean it's exactly a return to your old sound. How does this record fit in your discography and what kind of spaces do you imagine it being played in now that we're post-pandemic? I mean, a lot of it's not going to get played in clubs, you know, half of it's going to be a bit challenging for clubs, but some of it would. I feel like Loading and Tell Me can can be played in those kind of places and Fallback and He's Been Wonderful and stuff like that. There's a lot of four to the floor stuff. There's a lot of like percussive stuff. There's also reflective stuff and ambient stuff. You know, some albums at the moment are tending towards homogenization in the sense of this album is a genre and it's going to have these beats pretty much across the whole thing. I wanted something on here that felt like a journey within the album. I've always thought like that. I think an album should be a, a, a journey and a story that begins and ends. I don't really give a shit about the streaming side of it in terms of you know well they're going to take a song off this anyway and just put it on a playlist so why why make a full body of work you know why connect the dots to me like i do listen to albums and i do think it's important to connect those dots if the streaming and playlist doesn't play a part then how do you choose what you're going to release as like your lead single and then loading comes after yeah well i mean if i cared about streaming i probably wouldn't have put big hammer out first to be honest but i did because i think it's the most subversive track something about it just felt anarchic and fun i think i'm just too closely associated sometimes with maybe self-seriousness and i was just like well this is and it's like i kind of broke that with say what you will with the video and stuff because it's not really what i'm like as a person so i was just like okay let's just do something that they're not going to expect the camera felt like the one and the video just like brings that even more to life for me like oscar hudson just did um, made a masterpiece in, in my opinion when you released Big Hammer, like longtime fans went fucking crazy. Like this sounds kind of like CMYK or it's reminiscent of it. But as an artist, how is it dealing with pressure from longtime fans asking you to like create music similar to your old stuff? I don't feel any pressure to do that, if I'm honest. You know, even if there is any coming at me, I don't feel it anymore. I think I did for a while, but obviously it didn't change my trajectory as you've seen in the last few years. But like on this record, you know, I wanted to, I mean, I, I said it in that interview I did for Mixmag where, where I sort of just talked about the context of music for us is always particular and we will never feel the same things again. We'll always attach certain feelings to certain songs. It's not an artist's responsibility to just 
keep churning out things that make you feel that way because ultimately they can't. It would be a fool's errand to try and replicate what you've done in the past. So I don't try and do that. But I do also love my fans and I love people who love the same kind of stuff as me and I just want to make them happy and I don't want to like just make music for just myself and you know whatever it's like it, I'm I'm not um gatekeeping anything I want to I want to give people what they want I felt like I hadn't expressed my sort of mad production side for a while and it was something that my, my uh, Jamila said I was starting to embark on making new stuff and I was making all this stuff at the same time as a bunch of other stuff and and I was like I don't know which album to sort of go with next and I was in this kind of crossroads I was like do I really do another kind of full songwriting project or do I do a thing that kind of feels like more what I want to do she's always been a huge sort of fan of the wilder side of my production so when so she will come to a show and and like her favorite moments will be like stop what you're doing and voyeur you know, the techno-y moments in the set where we really just go nuts. And this album is, in in a way, because of her kind of encouragement for me to go and explore that more and, like, stand behind it. It was her instigating that and, like, giving me the confidence to just fully go into it. Do you ever feel like it's even fair for people to ask an artist of what they want? Uh, yeah, Sure. But it's like asking Apple for, you know, they don't care if I want just a standardized USB port. <laughs> Maybe the analogy is bad because obviously, you know, that's a huge conglomerate and uh, we're talking about people here. But but I just mean there's no harm in asking. And also, I do feel like some people are more, they include their fans in what they're making more than others. And they kind of work for their audience more than others, right? And I think that, my fan base are people who would rather I made something that made me happy and that I was excited about because you hear it in the in the in the record you know than me just do something that reminds them of something else you know like the people who listen to my music they want to be surprised a bit they want like a new thing to feel that thing too you know want to feel new things like unlock new feelings and be surprised like that's that's how I feel about music and it seems like you know like like attracts like so I feel very lucky that in that way like like yes there are people who you know were fans of my dance music in the past and kind of just wanted me to do that and didn't really want me to make any of the other stuff like you know friends that break your heart and all that stuff and I can see why that would disappoint some people but at the same time like those people could still come to my club night and hear me play all the tunes that they like and also a bunch of new shit that they've never heard before like there's always been an avenue and a venue for everything that anyone I've always done piano solo shows. Like, I go and do live shows with Ben and Rob. I release shitloads of music with different artists, of different genres, whatever it is that people want. If they're not getting it now, it's like, if you don't know me about now, then you'll never, ever, ever know me. It's like, are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to make people happy. I just like, you know, I guess with the Doja Cat thing and she's like yelling at her fans and I'm like, does she have the right to yell at her fans? I'm like, I guess so. I guess everyone has the right to do whatever they want and react however they want to whatever. But it's just like, yeah, it's hard to find the balance. She's under a huge amount of pressure, pressures that most people could never, ever, ever understand. I feel for her. The kinds of people who go into music as a career, we're vulnerable people. 
a lot of people are incredibly abusive towards her. You know, I, I don't know who she was talking to specifically. In fact, I don't really know anything about it. But what I know is that the internet's a funny place, man. You know, there's a lot of people throwing stones and hiding their hands. They'll come out of the woodwork and just shout abuse at people and then just disappear and you'll never see them again. If you read all the comments and you're engaged with people, then it's, it must be hard to, you know, to know who's really riding with you and who isn't. And I don't know. I, I, all I know is that the internet's fucking scary and um, I try and avoid it as much as I can. I miss your tweets from 2016. I look back and I just, when I think about it, it's like, I was so overwhelmed. Do you know what? We should be overwhelmed by the amount of people we're talking to when we when we tweet, especially people who've got a big following. It's way more overwhelming than a lot of people give it credit for. Our revolution has not prepared us to speak to that many people and for every, all those people to hear our words. It's like, it's a scary fucking place. I know that everyone's just sort of like, toughened up and and just sort of like developed a, skin, a thick skin for social media because that's what our culture has sort of demanded of us. I find it really hard. That's kind of what I'm saying about Doja. It's like I don't know her fans and I don't know what she said, but I've cracked under the pressure of being on social media for sure. I find it all very, very unnatural and the, and the, and the parasocial thing and the way people lose their empathy for people. I've never had a conversation in real life as dramatic and as hateful as some of the ones I see online. I was insane. Or even the way that I've been like compelled to say something about something. I see my words written down. I like, I don't speak like that. But you feel like kind of like you have to say something in a certain way because no one knows anyone really. We don't know each other properly. Like think about your best friends and think about your relationship or think about all these and think about how you know them and all the like sensitive, tender, sweet moments you share with people that hopefully in your life. And then think about what conversations are like online. You can't be yourself online because if you were yourself, then you'd get ripped to shreds because any shred of vulnerability is seen as a, as a weakness to be stamped out, which just reminds me of school. So it's like, of course, you'll never know me. You'll never know what I'm actually like. You'll never know my jokes. And I've kind of come to accept that. You know, like, it's it's like, I'll never know a celebrity. I'll never know what they're really like unless I actually spend time with them. And I actually, you know, the amount of people who, and I've been lucky in my career to meet a lot of really amazing people uh, and some not so amazing, you know? And the amount of people I've heard shit about who, when I met them in real life, were just great. I'd run out of fingers. It's it's insane. The internet is insane. What do you think is harder, expressing yourself through like a tweet or expressing yourself through songwriting? By far a tweet. By far. A tweet is a terrifying thing to do. Anyone who tells you otherwise is just trying to get you to say some shit. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm actually curious about your song, Fire the Editor. Maybe because I'm a writer, I was like, I like this title and I wanted to know the story behind it. Yeah, well, the, the lyrics to Fire the Editor are... Oh, shit, I've completely forgotten them. Uh, Fire the Editor, he's killing the flame. Uh, he's killing the flame. Uh, I know there's no place for blame. He's trying to save me from failure, but I've already failed. And I'm not afraid I've already failed so many times. You're the only one on my side. I'm counting myself. And if I see him again, if I see him again, best believe me, they'll we'll be having words. And you know what? I don't really like explaining songs because people 
are probably going to find their own meaning with it. So here's a disclaimer. If you don't want to have this song completely ruined for you in your context, you've already given it, don't listen to this next part, please. The editor is me, is, is, is your in, internal monologue. It's the inner voice that prevents you from being yourself, being an unedited, truly authentic self, really. You edit yourself to, to kind of give a, the impression of you that you'd like people to receive. And I mean, sometimes I see my videos online and I'm just like, who's that? And maybe it's a millennial thing, but the camera comes, I'm like, is it recording? <laughs> you know, that vibe. So anyway, fire the editor, get rid of it. He's trying to save me from failure. to like uh, you talking about figuring out what you wanted to release next like the last kind of full-length project you put out was wind down with Endel, which was an ai powered album designed to help you sleep is keeping fans guessing what's next something that's like intentional are you going to put out something different on club related this next time i actually don't really think about it that much sometimes in hindsight I say something like, well, you know, I have to keep them on their toes. But really, it's it's just because I wanted to put out some different music I've made. And I make a lot of different types of music, you know, like I've just done a soundtrack. A lot of that stuff doesn't sound, I mean, it's like that doesn't sound like CMYK. That doesn't sound like Friends That Break Your Heart. This studio I'm in just has so many potential sounds that I could do. And I'm 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 sort of like an explorer in that way. You know, I just enjoy finding new shit. And I think like another project that interested me was you wrote a song for Neil Brennan's Blocks. Yeah, I feel like I was toying with this idea that like comedians and DJs are kind of similar where they have to like create a set and like read the room to make them laugh or dance. What, if anything, do you think that DJs and comedians can learn from each other? Comedians would love how easy it is to be a DJ, I'll tell you that. Just seeing how what comedians go through to get to get the laugh, to get the set kind of perfected is is honestly like harrowing. Like to ima- imagine myself in that situation where it's like you're you're bombing and that's how you find out the material doesn't work. It's like as a DJ, it's like a couple of people like a few people leave the dance floor and go and get a drink. Or you see people like stop being as like into it. You don't really see like full on rejection very often as a DJ, unless you're uh, very bad. But I think the art forms, yeah, I see what you're saying. I think there's like a a thing of like dictating the vibe in the room, and and, and but I but I see comedy as a much more high risk, high wire, tightrope walk. And especially given the political climate, it's like you've also got to be aware of like how your jokes might get taken out of context and. Just like Twitter, you know, if it, if it exponentially goes out of control and you've got no, you know, you can't defend yourself. It's like that That stuff is scary too. Yeah, I think music is a safer safer place to, to emote. But I, So I have a lot of respect for comedians to push the boundaries uh, right now is, is a difficult thing to do. Uh, a difficult thing to do in a way that's like truly empathetic as well and like actually original. And I think Neil does that as well. And actually, one th- one thing I love about Neil is that he's done a lot, you know, he's been very public about this. He's done huge amounts of work on his mental health. And he's done 
he's really tried everything under the sun, you know, as he says himself, whether it's, you know, certain type of drug therapies or ayahuasca and all these other, you know, things that he talks about, and also antidepressants and all different kind of like allopathic drugs, but then also so much therapy, EMDR, you know, like all just gone on this huge journey to feel better. And, and I think that, you know, a lot of comedians and a lot of musicians are afraid of doing that because, you know, what was it Carl Jung said, you know, like, uh, that which you most need can be found where you least want to look. He's really looked in the places he didn't want to look. And I, I, firstly, I always respect that if somebody does that. Men aren't traditionally encouraged to do that, or anyone really, for that matter. But, but the way he's done it is also brave because a lot of comedians and musicians are afraid that if they do that, then they won't be creative anymore and they won't be funny. Especially comedians worry that they're not going to be funny if they do therapy and that they get better, you know? He was like, fuck that, I'd rather be happy than funny. That's what I did. I was like, fuck that, I'd rather be happy than than good at music. Honestly, if that's what the choice is, then let me just live my life and be happy. Like, I'll, I'll make middle-of-the-road music for the rest of my life if that's what that means. I don't give a shit. As a result, he's actually ended up the funniest he's ever been. Like, I saw him the other night, and I was like, this is way funnier than, like, Three Mics. Three Mics is amazing, but this is... This is the best he's ever been. And I think that sets an amazing precedent for artists and comedians to really pursue it and say, like, no, we're not going to, like, romanticize depression and anxiety as these kind of, like, creative uh, fuels, because they're not. They're not at all. It doesn't work like that in reality and in practice. If anything, those things just hold you back and stop you from achieving what you want to achieve. They actually stop you being funny and they stop you being creative. So... That's what I love about Neil, um, as well as the, just blocks being great. Do you feel like when you are the happiest you've ever been, you do make the best music as well? Yeah, you know what I do? I think what I identified was that I need to write about when I'm not just sad. I think a lot of my first three, two albums, three albums, it's like, I wasn't always sad, but I got this reputation for being very sad. And that's okay. I don't mind that. You know, lots of people are very sad. But I wasn't writing about the times I had great days. And I think what's different about me compared to something like some of my idols, like Stevie Wonder or whatever, it's like they were writing about days where they were happy and in love and, and all that stuff as well, alongside all of the sad songs. And actually there is a kind of um, fetishization of sadness as well that kind of like, as you know, if you, if you, you sort of see someone as like this sad person and, and if they do anything outside of that, then they lose you and it's like, you know, there are people who are literally on social media who, who like, if they post that they're happy, they get they lose followers <laughs> like, because their whole brand has become uh, someone to identify with when you're feeling sad, and that's, you know, that can be unhealthy too. So I, I, um, I wanted to break out of that, and I feel like I'm in a good place now where I can kind of write about anything. interview podcast you mentioned that you never experienced romantic heartbreak so do you have any advice for those of us who are looking for love just be yourself man <laughs> i don't know man no i don't know 
That's the cliche advice, isn't it? Um, the thing I regret is that when I entered the relationship of, of my life, I think, I hadn't figured out my mental health first. I wish I'd have used that some of that time when I didn't have anyone reflecting it back to me and when I when I didn't kind of have some responsibility to like be balanced and okay for someone else, like, and for myself. I wish I, you know, I wish I'd have sorted that out first. But I didn't know at that time and I didn't have the vocabulary and the language to talk about it and I hadn't really been taught how to do that. So maybe the generation following me probably has a bit more kind of understanding of their minds and what projection is and what, you know, anxiety is and what, you know, these things are like when I was a kid, they weren't, they weren't talked about. And you know what? A lot of people probably are more worked out than we were uh, already. So maybe, maybe I don't need to give this advice, but I think that there's always still going to be stuff, you know, there's still going to be stuff that comes to the surface when you, when you enter a relationship that you really care about. And you might wish that you'd done some of that work earlier because it makes it hard, but eventually uh, I got through it and we got through it and it's, you know, now it's amazing, but it's just, I, you know, it would have meant that the honeymoon period wasn't, wasn't as rocky. <laughs> I think that's good advice. Everyone looks for love and sometimes when their mental health is is not at their best and that's their way of coping. So, I mean, I can only speak for myself. I'm like that sometimes too. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, if you're not feeling great, then obviously like another person can be an attractive uh, solace. That solace doesn't last. It only lasts as long as you don't feel seen fully by them. And then as soon as they can see you, you don't want to look at them anymore. And you have to figure out why you don't want to look at them because you actually love this person. That's what leads to the the breakthroughs. But the breakthroughs are painful. If if somebody comes into your life and you're not comfortable in yourself, you sort of see what you're what you were like, well, I was I was coping before. I was I was fine before, right? But then this person I really love came into my life and and now I now I feel like it's kicking up dust, you know, it's kicking up all of these issues, which every relationship does, then it's very easy to point the finger at them and be like, well, you're the reason I feel this way. And it's got nothing to do with them. Um, and in the process of doing that, you can hurt their feelings and potentially hurt the relationship. So it's like, it's important to have done as much as that, much as that work beforehand so that you can kind of keep, the, keep the score sheet clean really and just be coming to come into things fresh and you're not, you're not just like coming into something acting your best and then ultimately falling apart it's like that's we've all done that <laughs> but it's, it doesn't end well that was james blake talking to the faders ariel lana lajard james blake's new album playing robots into heaven drops this friday september 8th via republic and polydor records the Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfer. We'd like to thank Lauten Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.